Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 114. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Our guest today, Kent Johnson, has traveled the world. I suppose you could call it purpose-driven travel, but we'll talk more about that later. Right now, we want to say, welcome, Kent. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, I thank you for this invitation. My name's Kent Johnson, and as Becky said, I am a, a world traveler, but not in the normal sense of the word as in cruise ships and resort places and all of that. But I will tell my story and show you what that's all about. I read in an interview that you gave that you grew up in Los Angeles. So when did you come to the Treasure Valley? I got recruited to come to the College of Idaho in 1969. That was a long time ago. But I grew up in the LA area and we moved every year or two, so I never really stayed in any one place a long time. But by the time I was 18, I was really ready to be out of California and anywhere else. And I got recruited to come to school on an industrial scholarship. And I came and visited Boise, which was very small at the time. And I actually was in a little smaller town called Caldwell. And I settled into school there for four years and loved it and learned many things. And I will go into a lot of detail about why I came here and what I left behind. So where did that education lead you? Even before I finished school, where I studied a lot of different things, the thing I liked about that school was they allowed me to create my own major because I looked at a lot of all the majors that most schools offer, and they were all boring. I wasn't interested in any of them. So they said, well, we have an interesting independent study sort of thing, and you can create your own major, which I did in an in a industrial design sort of setting, which involved architecture, interior design, mechanical engineering, all of that sort of stuff, you know, like building a steel stairway or building a skyscraper or a handcrafted wooden house or a wooden boat. Whatever it was, I love using my hands, and wood was my medium. And I always had a little shop wherever we lived in junior and high school. And in high school, I got privileges to use the carpentry shop and mastered wood in there. And they said, you really ought to do something with this. And so I entered a uh, competition, as it were, in the state of California for an industrial scholarship and finished at the top of my class in that and came to Idaho. I understand you've built somewhere around 400 buildings. Did you design those or you constructed them? And I understand that was all over the world. And is there a story you have about one of them, the biggest or the smallest or something like that? As I mentioned a minute ago, 
I came to the college to learn lots of things and work in what I considered my hobbies. And I ended up starting a construction business that allowed me to get paid for playing, building things. And I started a demolitions company, so I got paid lots of money to crush buildings and haul them away. And I learned to salvage these buildings and get a lot of really, really nice, unusual building materials, which I soon started converting into new houses built with old materials. And halfway through school, I had a contract to build. Well, it wasn't really a contract. I got a lot, and I built my first little house over in Caldwell. At the same time, I was demolishing the psychology building on campus. And they were paying me to tear it down, which was like paying me to go to the lumberyard and buy material. And I kept all the material, and I sold enough to pay for everything else I needed to build this house. And since then, it uh, has grown into a very large company, which is long gone now. But of those 400 buildings, most of them were higher-end homes. I built a, a hospital in Ecuador where, to this day, we see about 20,000 patients a year for free now in 22 surgical specialties. Medical clinics from Mombasa, Africa, to Ecuador, to Mexico, Guatemala, in many different places. The biggest project I ever built was a building in on the Fifth Ring Road in Beijing, China, which was going to be a 40-story building for luxury apartments. That was probably the biggest building. Another interesting building was in the South Pacific, where I uh, got together with two guys from here in Boise, and we bought an island and built an eco-resort totally out of redwood, which I shipped out of Boise. And it was all eco, second-growth redwood. We didn't cut down any of those great old trees. And it was a beautiful little resort. We never got to spend a night in it because as soon as we got it finished, there was a coup in that little country, and they took our island and our hotel. We never got to stay there. And most of my construction was right here in the Treasure Valley and a little bit of commercial building, but mostly houses that I designed. And I like pounding nails, so I've worked on almost all of them, including the one that I live in to the present day. Now that's fascinating. Um, I'm sure we could continue asking questions about your construction history, but I also read that you have a fascination for fine arts. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, when most kids in high school are doing with girls and impressive sports cars what they do, I was collecting medieval books and manuscripts from the age of 14. After my mom dropped me off at the Ambassador Hotel one day, and they happened to have the International Antiquarian Book Fair going on, and I was just mesmerized by six, seven, eight hundred-year-old books. And I fell under the wings of an English bookseller who thought it very odd that a 14, 15-year-old punk kid would be in a place like that and actually interested. And he took me under his wing for years and turned me into a collector where I eventually built the largest private library in this state of Idaho with all of these medieval relics. And at the same time, I developed another habit, and that was uh, handmade carpets and tapestries. I bought my first Persian carpet. It was actually a Peking palace carpet in 1965, and the guy offered me a mortgage so I could pay for it at my $5 a week allowance. It took years, 
but I got it done. And to this day, I have now around 2,000 carpets, which I sell in a gallery here in Boise for the express purposes of supporting a scholarship fund, which I set up in Lima, Peru some years ago. Are those rare books on display somewhere, like in a museum? Actually, some of them are. I talked to my kids at some length a few years ago about the ultimate disposition of my huge library, which obviously was worth a considerable amount of money as well. And both of my kids, being young people, and said, lose them, Dad. Okay, then. So I started having sales and auctions at some of the big auction houses and different places, and I sold many of them and used the proceeds to build primarily an orphanage in Guatemala City where we have almost 1,900 kids. And last year, I was looking at the last of my old books, and I thought, you know, maybe I should do something a little different with the last group of these ancient books. So about their being on display, if you want to see them, you can go to the now-established Special Collections Division at the Boise State University Library. That's very cool. We'll have to do that. You have mentioned to Steve and in the interviews that you once had a problem with racism. So um, would you like to talk about that aspect of your life? It's not so much that I want to talk about it because, you know, it's, it's a hard part, but I think I need to talk about it just to show that there is a possible transformation in, in the human art. Back when I was living in California, I remember very well when the uh, 1965 Watts riots broke out, and it was a horrible time to experience what they called Charcoal Alley, when after a traffic arrest... The people rioted and burned down 200 blocks of downtown L.A. to the ground. It doesn't sound like something that happens in this country, but it did, and I watched it. And I grew up a lot of my life in that area where the population was as unwhite as any place could be, so it was other colors. And it never bothered me. I wandered around as a kid and thought, well, this is normal. Some people must spend more time in the sun than I did. I don't know. Racism wasn't even, didn't enter my head. But after those riots, I started thinking about it more, and I was getting a little more aged and thinking, hmm, why are these people doing this? Is there something different or substandard about certain groups of people? And thought about it, but didn't do anything about it. And finished high school and came to Idaho, where I lived in Caldwell. Caldwell then, as it does now, has quite a significant percentage of Hispanic population. And very early on there, after I got married, my wife was robbed by several Hispanics at her work. I had several cars stolen by Hispanics. I had a lumber company by that time in Caldwell from my salvage operations, and the Hispanic development neighborhood that they built next door to my business, I think, most of those houses, or half of them anyway, were built out of lumber they stole out of my yard on the weekends. So I started disliking that group of people, to put it mildly. And the uh, seeds of racism were well planted. And that developed over the years, and then the Rodney King riots happened, and the racism was 
flourishing. And the experiences I had uh, were never better and only got worse in terms of dealing with other groups of people. I had construction company, demolition company, and the, uh, I'll just call them other groups of people, seemed to be very good at stealing and manipulating payrolls and whatever. And it was just, I was seeing the bad side of a lot of cultures. But I was about to start seeing the uh, bad side of my own. And I had to go through some experiences by which I had to give up the hate. And I needed a transformation of the human heart. And I was always doing things my way. Made a lot of mistakes in business. Lost fortunes. Lost even up to my family at one point. And was driven to a point of suicide where I realized it's not working. It's, I've been a failure. I hate, I steal, I do everything wrong because I did it my way. One of my favorite songs is a uh, great piece of music that I still love. It's Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. I did it my way for 40-some years. Didn't work. It does not work. And I got to the end of myself and to the end of a gun one night. And I couldn't even do that right. I couldn't pull the trigger. And I just realized, no matter what I try, it wasn't working. And I was on my knees in sub-zero weather in a cornfield trying to kill myself. Couldn't do it. And I had this just divine, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, experience. And if the good Lord, God above, ever put up anything in neon lights or sent a fax, I was getting it for the first time, or at least it was the first time I was ever listening. And I just I gave myself up. I said, God, if you're real, prove it. Show me. And he did. And he took away the hate and the racism, the ego, and so many things that are hard to talk about and even harder to lay down. But through that transformation, he took out that heart of stone and put in one of flesh, like it says in the good book. And that didn't make everything good and better overnight. It's a lifelong process through experiences in our work and why we do what we do, which brings me kind of back to those rugs. I love Persian and Turkish and handmade rugs from other countries. And I love building things. But in my later years, I've learned that uh, there's better things to be built than houses and skyscrapers and clinics. And that's building lives. And instead of investing in bricks and boards and nice air tools, I found it much more rewarding to invest in scholarships, school supplies, bandages for the surgeries in the hospital. And that all came home to roost for me about 10 years ago when they... Uh, in my own hospital in Cuenca, Ecuador, they diagnosed me with stage 4 colon cancer. That changes your priorities in, not overnight, in more like a New York second. 
And all of a sudden, all that stuff that mattered so much to me didn't matter at all. And all the stuff I discarded suddenly mattered. And all that discarded stuff was the lives around me and my ability maybe to invest in them and change some of them. And that's kind of manifested itself now in the scholarship fund, in the hospital in Cuenca, and the orphanage in Guatemala. And those three things are why I get up every day, why I sell rugs. I've had a lot of businesses in my life, and some of them have done very poorly, and some of them have done very well. The ones that have done well have made it possible to create this uh, gallery where I sell all these handmade carpets and rugs, where 100% of the proceeds now goes into young lives. And the best part of that hard work is every few months I get to go down and I get to go see those faces coming out of the airport to take me home to where I live in, in Peru and different places. That's the reward. To see those kids graduate is way better than getting in a new car or signing off on a new house. It's just a new life. And that's kind of where I find myself now. As the sun goes down in my life, I'm hoping I'm leaving some sort of a legacy where that sun can come up in the lives of people who otherwise might not have a chance. That's my story. enjoyed your cornfield story. Um, so back to the racism. Uh, how, how is it that now you spend a lot of time in Latin America? Well, to be honest and maybe a little blunt, I think the good Lord has a sense of humor. And I was on a trip in Mexico. And one night I was out sitting on a breakwater Think Mazatlan, 75 degrees at midnight, full moon, palms rustling in the breeze. Gorgeous, happy place. And I was sitting on this breakwater on some big rocks with a friend. And he said, you know, we should do some praying. I said, praying? Before? Well, it's just a good thing. I said, okay. I was new at this. I said, okay. Some people say, you know, God told me, God said. Well, I've never heard God tell me anything. I've never, never heard anything said that he said, but that night he told me. Not an audible, not in a text, but you know and you know her. My mom used to say, you know and you know her. And I knew that night when he, when he said, you hated my people so much. I said, yes, I did. Forgive me. And like audible sound almost, he said, I already did that. But now, you're going to spend the rest of your life loving them as much as you hated them. And he said, what? I can't even speak to these people. He said, you know, Moses said the same kind of stuff, and did he not 
get the words he needed when he needed them. I can do that with you. And he has spent the last 25 years proving that. I used to think Spanish was a sound system for ignorant people who weren't capable of an actual real language, you know, with verbs and adjectives and all that stuff. And I'd go to Walmart or wherever and I'd hear his Spanish and I thought, man, how do those guys even understand each other with all that gibberish noise sound stuff? Well, I've since found out that Spanish is probably one of the more beautiful languages, more expressive ones in the world. If somebody had told me 25 years ago you were going to learn it and eventually have two teaching academies in Guatemala and in the U.S., I would have said, uh, I think you got me mixed up. You're crazy. But it happened. And now my closest and most important people in my life don't speak a word of English, and it's totally great. So there is that transformation possibility, and I offer it to everybody that wants to hear the same offer that I got. You just gotta have your heart renewed and get your brain renewed, and you can hear the language of anybody spoken to you through the good Lord's love. I'm a hard case. It took years for me to figure that out, and sometimes I think I am still figuring it out until the day he calls me home. It's been a great ride, though, and I encourage anybody that's listening to this to come along in reality or at least through these words because the best is yet to come. How did you learn Spanish then? I mean, you had that, that feeling before, and now you're, you're interpreting. I mean, you can do it all. How did that come about? If you sit around a swimming pool for six months and talk about swimming and you have the best coaches and they tell you all about swimming, but you don't get in the water, nothing happens. You got it all in your head, but you don't have it in your muscles. It's the same with a language. Little kids don't need to learn verb lists or adjectives. They just hear their mothers repeating things over and over and it kind of gets on the hard drive from an early age. And I came up with the idea, maybe it's not original, that I didn't need to go to school. All I needed to do was get in the pool. And even here in little old Boise, Idaho back then, I'd go down to those Mexican taco trucks, and I love tacos. And I would talk to those people, or try to, or I'd go down to a Mexican restaurant at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when there's nobody there, and I'd talk to the uh, staff in there, or try to. Or I'd go down to Walmart on Overland Road, and there'd be lots of Hispanics there, and I'd try to talk to them. And little by little, you're in a pool, you're going to get wet. You're around another language and you don't use your own, it's going to go in. And it did. And it's an amazing thing. That it's like I lived in a two-dimensional world my whole life and suddenly it was becoming three-dimensional. Never went to school for the language. I just decided to build schools to teach other people language, including Spanish. And it was an immensely rewarding stage of life the stepping stone to ministry and possibilities in uh, Latin America. Besides, I love the culture there, and I love the food. There's just a lot to love about Latin America, especially the people.
I'd like to hear more about the organizations you've started and buildings you've built in Latin America, but also I know that at one time you built yourself a really large house and then under the influence of a a Maori couple kind of rethought that. So could you tell us that story? That's an interesting chapter. Yes, that one is very worthwhile. Back in my uh, Frank Sinatra days, my way, I decided that I needed to have the largest house ever built in Ada County at that time. So I set about for four and a half years pounding together this 10,000 square foot house out in the country. A magnificent building built in the uh, Elizabethan English Tudor architectural style, all hand-cut stone, handmade brick, rare woods from the Congo River in Africa, and this gorgeous library, which housed my collection of medieval manuscripts, and gorgeous rugs everywhere, five acres of gardens, had a 100-meter speed skating track built to Olympic specifications, had it all. It was a gorgeous place. And it was a lot of work. I was building way over my head, but, you know, I got to show those Joneses next door how it's supposed to be done. So I I built this place, had it in the Parade of Homes. It was the first home ever offered in uh, Boise for a million dollars. It was a showboat. Well, as a project, one of my overseas projects, I was invited to go to a little island south of New Zealand to build a little bed and breakfast. Of course, getting volunteers from my construction company was not too difficult. Asked people if they'd like to go to New Zealand and build a place. So got a little crew together, and we went over there. And while we were over there building this project, I met a Maori Indian couple in their late 70s. They seemed just super ancient, but, you know, I'm about to go into my 70s. They don't seem so old now. And they invited me to come to their home for lunch. This whole island only has 500 people, so you can walk everywhere, at least where people live. So I went with them. We got to their house, and they lived out on a little point of land. Visualize a point of land looking due south. And on the right side was the Tasman Sea towards Australia. And on the left side was this deep South Pacific Ocean. Next stop was the Ross Ice Shelf. But this area is protected by a, uh, a warmer current. So there's actually even palm trees and eucalyptus trees growing in this super uh, southern area. We got to their house, and it was about the size of a modern two-car garage. Had a dirt floor, which they kept really flat and packed with a little bit of water sprayed on it. Corrugated iron roof. No windows because they didn't have any money for glass. They just had old-fashioned oil cloth would would let uh, light come through it. No rooms inside. They had a curtain that separated off an area to sleep. There was no bathroom. They had a uh, privy out back. Single light bulb. A wood or or coal-fired stove to both heat and to cook on. That was the kitchen. And a little refrigerator, kind of like you see in a dorm, real small. We were sitting there while she was making lunch. And I'm just looking at this house, thinking, wow, 
I'm living in this palace where I live, and these people are living in this shack. Well-kept, gorgeous little garden outside. They grew veggies, and I remember the geraniums that were outside. It's just gorgeous. And we got to talking about the lottery. The, the, the country was going to install a national lottery, just like we have here, to solve all of the social ills that New Zealand was having, like all countries have. And I asked her, I said, what would you do if you won $100 million? She didn't answer me. It's three feet away from her. So I asked her again. I said, what would you do? Sir, wait, wait, wait. I'll tell you. Let me think for a minute. I said, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. And she said, well, I'll tell you as things come to my mind. In the first place, my husband and I, we have the good Lord Jesus in our lives. Second place, we still got our health. Uh, we have a family that loves us, and we love them. We've never been off this island, but we hear it's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And I said, well, I've traveled a lot, and they are absolutely right about that. Um, that roof doesn't leak. That refrigerator doesn't have much in it, but there's always something. Help yourself. So, if you can tell me anything that we're lacking, that's what we would buy. But right now, I think we've got everything we need or want. And that was one of those moments in my life. It was, it was a game changer. I had rooms in my palace that I hadn't walked into for six months. Because, you know, how much space do you need in a 10,000 square foot house? You do laps in there. And I went home humbled. I put that house up for sale. I couldn't be in it. The property taxes were more than those people made in a lifetime. But it was a lesson that I learned a super strong, powerful, hard lesson about what matters. How rich I thought I was. And on that little table in her humble little house, I realized that I had it backwards. That they were so much, much richer than I had ever thought or hoped to be. But I could do something about that. You retired a couple of years ago. What's life like now? You know, I thought when you retired, you got to go sit on a beach and have a margarita, you know, like Jimmy Buffett does or did. And, uh, evidently, retirement's different than that because I think I'm busier now than I ever was. But I had a distributorship for granite and marble slabs and blocks from all over the world. I sold that business two years ago to kind of throttle back and enjoy life. Problem is, um, I don't sit still well. So I'm uh, heavily involved in my projects, which mostly are the scholarship fund in Peru, which is aimed at kids. I call them kids because my kids are in their 40s now. But they're kids who want to study at the university level and have no other means to do so. And a lot of people ask me, well, why do you scholarship kids clear over there instead of right here in the U.S.? Kids in the U.S. can study if they want to. They can get mom to pay for it. 
dad to pay for it. They can go deeply into debt with student loans and spend their life paying them off. Or they can get really good grades and get scholarships. Or they can get Pell Grants. And I'm not minimizing any of that. It's just to say that if you want to study in this country, you can. There's really no barrier if you really want to. It may be difficult and expensive, but you can. In Latin America, that's not the case. So I try to create a possibility in the lives of some kids who have demonstrated a aptitude and a desire to make themselves into something, whether it's architects, great chefs, great plumbers, lawyers, whatever they want to do. There is no criteria as far as what they want to do, just that they do it and do it well. Another project is the orphanage Casa Bernabe. It's also called in the U.S. Friends of Children Everywhere. You can go look at the website by that name, Friends of Children Everywhere. A beautiful place, a 19-acre campus in Guatemala City, where we have seen close to 2,000 kids go through since we started 27, 28 years ago. And you can see and learn all about that there. Another place I get to go visit. Another project are the uh, clinics in Mexico which are all pretty much self-supporting and self-sustaining with local volunteers and smaller churches that take that up. Probably the larger project was the hospital in Cuenca, Ecuador, which is a gorgeous city of a half a million people in the Andes. It's springtime year-round there, and we have, it consists of three surgeries, operating rooms, some 20 nationals there that work as surgeons and uh, specialists, along with medical brigades that we do about every six or eight weeks with volunteers that come from the U.S., whether they be nurses, dentists, surgeons, translators, all kinds of people that we need. Between all of that, we do about 20,000 patients a year in some 20 surgical specialties. And if you don't have money, you still get cared for. And our primary focus is on indigenous poor that live in the Andes or out in the Amazon or down on the... uh, Ecuadorian coast. And it's just highly rewarding, very satisfying. I'll just tell you about one very rewarding case of a guy named Jose Ortiz, who lived out in a little village in the Amazon called Wallaquisa. He was 68 years old, blind as a bat for the last 30 years, bumping into trees. People walked him around out there. And he came into an eye clinic that we set up one day. I love working in triage because I get to meet all the patients and find out a little about them, try to put them at ease because a lot of people have great fear of doctors, especially the doctors and their tools. And so I was talking to Mr. Ortiz and I asked him about his eyes and he, he told me that he went blind some 30 years before. Out in the Amazon and in the mountains, those people don't tend to wear hats and they never wear sunglasses, so they burn their eyeballs out and they get cataracts. So I looked into his eyes and... They would just look like you poured a big drop of milk in the middle of both of them. I said, Mr. Ortiz, you have severe cataracts, obviously, and we can fix that. And he got very excited and hopeful, and he says, are you sure, doctor? And I said, well, I'm not the doctor, but we have a doctor here. I'm just uh, doing the preliminary look, and you do have cataracts, and we can fix those. He goes, well, I don't have money. I can't do this. And I said, we don't charge. We'll even give you a bus ticket to get all the way up to our hospital. And he was he was pretty happy about even the possibility. And I talked to him about vision, physical vision, 
And he said he'd prayed to the gods out there, and they never healed him. I said, well, you might want to consider that. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I explained that, well, there is one who can heal you. He can give you spiritual vision as well as these doctors can give you physical vision. What do you say we do them both? And he says, well, explain that to me. So I did, and right there, within 30 minutes, he came to a good saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus, and his spiritual eyes were opened wide. A week later, he came up to our hospital on a Thursday. We always operate on Fridays so that they have all weekend to lay around doing nothing because your eyes have to be still. He came on Thursday. We operated on him Friday. I love assisting on those. And he was bandaged up all weekend, lying still. And on Monday morning, we took the bandages off, and he had 20-20 vision like a 15-year-old and a smile about two yards wide. Who do you think he talks about now in his village? And that's the reward of working on those medical brigades or in the hospital down there. And it's like that every day. It's just, it's worth going for. And the orphanage in Guatemala equally spectacular work done by people who have been blessed in their lives and want to bless other lives and invest in them. As I'm sure most people know, Central America is truly a cultural, social, economic disaster zone overrun by drug cartels, corrupt governments, and people are caught in a very miserable existence, so many of them, and the worst off are the kids. So many are orphans from parents who've been killed in the drug wars, kidnappings, all of that kind of stuff. So we've created a safe place where, to date, almost 2,000 kids have come through, where they get education from kinder through high school, and by the same token, they are also offered scholarships to the universities in Guatemala, wherever they want to study. And we get sponsors from the U.S. that help out on that. It takes a lot of... uh, money to keep all of this stuff going. And that's the principal reason why now I have the rug gallery here in Boise, Idaho, where I sell these gorgeous handmade carpets from all over the world with the idea of helping kids and people all over the world who, through circumstance and misfortune, aren't able to help themselves. Part of our focus right now is the huge refugee crisis taking place in South America because of what's going on in Venezuela. If you come buy one of these rugs, you're helping somebody go to school, escape from uh, a dictatorship, people that you will never, ever meet on this side of eternity, but will be eternally grateful for that support. And so I spend my time in retirement trying to keep all of these uh, birds in the air, as it were, including airplanes, because I have to go uh, check on my kids and give them big hugs. And the hugs I get back. They have no price. So that's what I do. Keeps me busy. If you want to be a part of it, come to Rarity Rugs in Boise, Idaho, and I'll give you a visual feast and an opportunity. Oh, thanks, Kent. That's, uh, wow, what stories. His website is rarityrugs.com where you can see some of the rugs that, that he has. Uh, I've been there, and they are, uh, I don't know, is the word spectacular or what? 
can't how many, I don't even know the word, the loops or loop, thousands of something. <laughs> rugs are measured in knots per square inch typically. All of these rugs are handmade as in they're tied together one knot at a time. Some of these rugs have 800 knots in a square inch. So think of tying 800 knots on a postage stamp out of silk or out of super fine wool. Most rugs have two to 300 knots per square inch. So if you have a rug that's the size of your living room, you could be talking five, six, seven million knots. Years worth of work. And these people spend these years building these rugs, drawing them, creating them, and they sell here for two, three, four, five, six, even $20,000, which means they're working for, by our standards, would be a terrible wage. But we try to pay them a living fair wage, although many of my rugs are antiques. Some of them are 130, 40 years old. Gorgeous things. But an immense amount of work. They truly are artwork for your floor. Although most people hang the silk ones on walls. We have a lot of just tapestry kind of things and just lots of beautiful things. And I encourage you to come see them. And you have another website also. Uh, remind us what that is. Friends of Children Everywhere, which is the uh, orphanage in Guatemala City. Information in there about donation, information about our history is all on that page. And enjoy. There's some nice videos in there and you can see our kids down there as well. Again, thanks so much, Kent, for coming and sharing your story. That's pretty amazing. And that is going to do us for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to live your story to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.